if you are able and willing, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to be reading the passage tonight. We're continuing in Acts chapter 5. So we're going to be starting in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you were about to do with these men. For before these days, Theotis rose up, claimed to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew, some, uh, sorry, drew away some of the people after him. He, too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. So tonight we're continuing on in Acts, obviously. We're going to be finishing up chapter 5. I don't know if any of you feel this way. I feel like we've been in chapter 5 for forever. It's because we had Resurrection Sunday slotted in there too. So, But we're finishing it up tonight. And honestly, when I was looking over this passage, I was... Um, not super excited initially after I read through it. I said, I feel like we've done this before. I feel like we've had the apostles standing before the Sanhedrin before a couple times at least. And just thinking through it, you know, there's some obviously some difference in the in the second half, but I was thinking, what are what are we gonna what are we gonna talk about? I got a whole whole time up here. We're gonna talk about pretty much the same thing. Um, 
obviously I figured something out. Because um, here we are. And so looking at this, this obviously is in two, two sections, and I think we can kind of see that. We have the time where the, the apostles are standing before the Sanhedrin, and then you have the time where Gamaliel kind of steps up and, and has his little talk. So we're going to look at those two, those two sections. So this, this first section here where they're standing before the Sanhedrin, we, we kind of come in at the, in the middle of, of the scene there. So this was obviously a, uh, the ending of this interaction here. We see them then leaving and going to do things. But, so I wanted to, to recap. So I was kind of looking back at, at chapter 5 and checking a few resources and different things. There was one resource I looked at that pointed out that there seems to be a pattern emerging in, in Acts and how Acts is being written and, and presented. And the more that I started looking at that and sort of looking at this pattern, I realized there's, there's actually a little bit more to that pattern. So this isn't just the repetitive, oh, they're in front of the Sanhedrin again. Same sort of mess. There's, there's actually something here. So I'm probably going to mess up this saying, but something happens once, it's, it's an event. It's what? Yeah, something happens once, it's an event. Something happens twice, it's a coincidence. Sometimes three times, it's a pattern. Is that how it goes? If not, it's how it goes now. Um, but that's, that's sort of that idea, right? So if you see something once, it's sort of like, oh, that's the one time that happened. We, we still could learn something. But the fact that this, this pattern keeps happening, if we, we look in Acts, we're, we're now at a place where we've seen it three, four times. Now we can actually look back and see what that pattern is, what it looks like, what that means. And I think it's actually quite significant. So looking at this, we're, we're going to kind of back up a little bit and look at Acts from starting from chapter 2, because there's something here that I want to point out. And then we're going to jump back into Acts um, chapter 5, and we're going to kind of continue to walk through that. But I wanted to point out this pattern first before we really got started. So going back to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, if you remember, Holy Spirit comes upon the church. Where was the assembly at that time? Where, where were they? They were all meeting together. They were in the upper room, right? They're, they're praying and encouraging each other. Holy Spirit comes upon them. So that's what they'd been waiting for. So that happens to them as individuals and the group. They then go outside. Exciting things are happening. They're telling people the things that Jesus had done, right? They're, they're giving their testimony. They're talking about Jesus. And then you get Peter stepping up to speak, and, and the response to all of these events here is there's mockery. That happens one side, but you also have a response. So you have this thing that happens in the church, they then go outside, they then share it, and then the response is mockery, and then you also have the church kind of growing from that, right? Significantly that day, thousands of people. So that, that happened there. So you have the church then, and then it gives sort of this kind of closing assessment in chapter two and says, the church, they were, they were meeting together, they were, um, they were listening to the apostles' teaching, they were breaking bread, and we talk, talked a bit about that. That was the response. The response was they came back together and it was good, they had good fellowship, right? So then out of that, you then get into the next passage where then they're continuing to do some of these things. Peter and John go out and they to heal a man. So it says the church is doing this thing all together. They're meeting, the, you know, teaching and, and breaking bread. And then all of a sudden there's something that happens outside again. 
Then they go outside, and there's a healing. And then there's continued teaching outside, and then they're taken in front of the Sanhedrin, and you see opposition. Now it's more than mockery. Now they actually have to stand before somebody, right? They're told, don't you do this. They say, well, apostles are going to apostle, so they're going to go do what they're supposed to do, as they should have. And so they leave from there with a stern warning, but they, they go back, and they go back to the body, right? They go back to the assembly, and there's encouragement, and, and they talk more about this, and they, they sort of get real pumped up from this one, right? And they, they start to pray for boldness. Lord, we want to do this more. They see that opposition as this is good. We're, we're, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, right? And so the church is encouraged. So again, it turns into an internal focus. And then from there, they, uh, oh, and they prayed very specifically for boldness, and I think that's important. They, they basically pray to ramp it up. So then they go out again. Uh, but actually something happens first. What happens in chapter 5? Weird, weird passage. You have Ananias and Sapphira. That story. And then you also have from there, they go uh, outside from, from that. So you have this, they return, they pray for boldness, and then you have the Lord do something else internal as well. But you can sort of see like the, the response to this prayer for boldness is almost internal opposition. There's something bubbling up inside the church, which is dealt with. And then they go back outside. They're outside the church again. And then it says that they're doing miraculous signs. And that's where, where we kind of started last week, right? Some miraculous signs, these different things. And then they were brought to uh, prison again. There's there's something else to note there in verse 16. So chapter 4, verse 16. Something more happens. It gets ramped up again because it says that it's people from outside Jerusalem are now coming in. So this was something new. So every time you see this pattern happening, it ramps up and it ramps up and it ramps up again. But you see that pattern still repeating. So that takes place. They're put into prison and then the, uh, the Lord says, uh, not this time. So the angel goes and takes them out. So again, every time, everything is ramping up, ramping up, ramping up. So then that's where we arrive here, where they say, go get them. We're going to bring them before the council. They're, like, They're not here. The angel let them out. And where do you find them? You find them in the temple. All the apostles this time, they're in the temple, all preaching, teaching. Again, it goes outside. Goes inside and then goes outside, and then there's opposition. They are then all brought back in. So I, I wanted to to really think through that. You, what you see is this this sort of four part pattern with the early church that we're seeing right here in Acts. And I think this is something that uniquely was happening with this body, but it's something we can learn from that we'll probably we'll see that that we also fit into some of these patterns as well. But you have the Lord doing something inside the church. That's all of us together, I think also internally with individuals and small groups. That happens. It then goes external. Once it goes external, there's then opposition. Once that happens, there's the option to step into it and to move forward. At that point, you could also see a shrinking back. But what you only see the early church doing is a stepping forward. 
Every time they do, it all ramps up another degree. You can see it then ramping up to where we get in chapter 4, people from outside of Jerusalem are starting to come in. Right. The reason that's significant is what we're seeing here in this step right here in, in chapter 5 is we're seeing the Great Commission just being played out. So they're all in Jerusalem. They're doing what the Lord has asked them to do. They're following what the Holy Spirit has called them to do. And as they step into this pattern, then you see it actually starting to happen. And it's exciting because we'll see this pattern continue through the next few chapters and then a few chapters from here you actually see it go out to Samaria. A couple chapters after that you see it actually going out into the rest of the world. So you're seeing these things taking place and I think it's in this pattern. So you have that internal work that happens, which I think we could, we could say as, as that's taking place, that, that's sort of a sanctification sort of a thing that's happening that then moves into a external expression and evangelistic thing that happens. Once it goes external, then you'll have also then external opposition, but you also have an example of internal opposition in an ISIS of fire. And then at that point, the option then is, do you step into it and move forward, or do you shrink back? The example the earlier church gives us is they step forward every time. And I think as a fitting example, right? There being an example, it's recorded for us to follow into. And I think that pattern right there is highly significant. And I think we'll continue to see it here. You, you can even see it in the scripture itself where you have the disciples spending time with Jesus and then it moves on to then them as apostles moving forward and then you have the rest of the scriptures after Acts is Paul and the other apostles writing to then encourage the churches to continue doing the thing they're supposed to do. This is a pattern that is supposed to continue and to, and to endure throughout time. This is the pattern for the church with a capital C. I want to go back to chapter five here real quick. Did I lose anyone in all those different cycles? There's a lot of cycles. Even if you said yes, I'm going to continue to move on. So, sorry about that. I just want to point out a couple of things here though. In chapter five, you have them being brought before the council. Look at verse 28. It says, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. They don't even say his name. But I think we know who it is. And they know who it is. There's no mystery here. They know exactly who it is. This is Jesus, right? We told you not, it says here, strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching this is the second part that I really want to focus in on here for a second. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So, it's a very interesting turn of phrase that they use. So they're accusing the apostles of preaching Jesus and his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And they're saying, you're turning his blood against us. I don't think that's what happened. Because if you go to Matthew chapter 27, something different happened. In chapter 27, you look at verse 24. 
I'll just read it here if you want to join me there. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, this is back when Jesus is on trial before his crucifixion, he was gaining nothing but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See, it to, see to it yourselves. Verse 25, and all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This was something that they took upon themselves. Now, if we read that whole passage in, in fitting context, it is the religious leader's ramping up the crowd, just getting them all riled up. It was them who did this. They didn't, this is not the apostles who, who did this to them. All the apostles are doing are telling the truth. They either forgot, probably not. But they're saying, you're doing this to us. Which, of course, they did not. They accused the apostles of bringing that connection with with uh, Christ's blood upon them, and that's not what took place. Verse 29 says, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men, which was the same response that they gave in chapter four. In fact, in chapter four, they, they stated it as, as a question, who should we obey, God or men? And it's a rhetorical type of question, right? Who, who should I obey? Peter and John gave that answer. They gave them a stern talking to, charged them specifically, don't teach, and they let them go. But they already told them, we, we have to obey God. That, I think that was pretty clear. So here they are again. Verse 30, if God our Father raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. This, this of course, is highlighting what they are saying they're doing. They, they are accusing the apostles of pinning this death of Jesus on them. And while the death of Jesus was something that was necessary, that would have happened, right? You look at the circumstances and who was it that really drove that? That was most definitely them. So this kind of reveals a few different things on their side, which we'll see here in a second. And here they also highlight in verse 32, which they hadn't done Thus far, but in verse 32 it says, uh, we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us who obey him, to those who obey him. Look at verse 33. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. That ramped up quickly. But this isn't Obviously, this isn't the isolated incident. This is after several times. Every time, like we're saying, it ramps up higher and higher. The stakes get higher. The conversation gets more intense. So now you have all the apostles standing there, and they say that we want to kill them. If you go back to uh, the interaction that they had earlier, what they said was that they were jealous of the apostles, that they were able to gain that crowd, gain that following. There, so there is high emotion here. And I think that's really what we should really lean in on is that there's high emotion from the Sanhedrin side of things. For the longest time, if there were questions concerning who God was or some element of teaching, obviously the people would go to them, the teachers of Israel. 
Well, now there seems to be a different authority, and it happens to be the teachings of Jesus delivered by the apostles. They're the ones who are gathering thousands of people. They're the ones who are having this great impact. They're essentially jealous, if you want to put it that way. And they're also kind of embarrassed. They're supposed to be exerting their own authority. They're the ones that put them in jail. And apparently they can't keep them from doing what they're doing. You've got to think that it's embarrassing. So when they come in front of them and they say, we told you not to do this. Understand, they have the, stand, the, the standing where they, they say, we told you not to, so therefore you should obey us. Don't you know who really has the authority here? You're standing before us in this council. We tell you what to do, and they will not have it because they have a king, they have a savior, they have the Holy Spirit who is actually leading them. So it really does come down to that basic question that was asked earlier in, in chapter 4. Isn't it better for us to obey God? Which is, of course, delivered to the Sanhedrin like a rhetorical question. Of course, we should obey God and not men. So at this point, (laughs) they wanted to kill them. And had it not been for, we've already at Gamaliel, they probably would have but I wonder how they would have done it right there. Because before with Jesus, they were very concerned with being, things being legal, doing things properly. Were they then gonna have some sort of a conspiracy so that all 12 of them were then taken to Pilate? How is this gonna happen? How's this gonna work? We're not given, obviously, any of the plans that they had because Gamaliel steps in beforehand. They were so enraged that they were going to kill them. They said they wanted to, and at that point, they probably would have. Verse 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people. That's a good introduction. Um, He stood up and gave orders to put the, uh, the men outside for a little while. So they, very wise, get all these guys out of here. We're gonna have a talk first. And Gamaliel steps up. And he begins to give his, his speech. He's a member of the council who wants to have them take a different perspective just for a second. Just for a moment. We've already read through this account, so I don't feel like we need to read through all of these points again, but just pointing out, Gamaliel gives them examples of where there had already been rebellions before. There had already been men who stood up and defied not only the teaching of the Sanhedrin, but just general teaching or the Romans or something to that effect. We're not given all the details. But there were rebellions that had already popped up before. And Gamaliel points out, those all fizzled, right? Those didn't ha- they, they didn't accomplish what they set out to do. And we're not, again, we're not given all the details and what the objectives were, but they failed. The leaders died and they were all scattered. Now, if you put that in the context of what took place with Jesus and the apostles, this is normally the time. We're now, what, two months post-death, roughly? This is normally the time where the rebellion fizzles. The uprising falls apart. So Gamaliel points out, with all of those other instances, 
it naturally took place. We didn't have to do anything. Once the leader died, right, what does it say? They uh, strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter, right? Okay, that's, so if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. You don't have to worry about it. But, as he points out, look at verse 39, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them and you might even be found opposing God. I didn't read it properly. There's an exclamation point. I mean, he probably is pretty intense here as well. Now, we don't really hear much about Gamaliel. His name is dropped, I think, at least one more time. Maybe twice. But his name is just dropped. We don't hear much more about him. We don't get anything about him here. I do want to actually point out a couple of things here, though. One, there is a character that you would expect who would be here, who would also be standing up at this point in time, who either doesn't step up, doesn't stand up, doesn't speak, or he's not there. And I'm assuming the latter. And that's Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? He was a Pharisee. He was a very high-level individual. He's not mentioned anywhere in Acts. Just one thought is that once, once, he, uh, once he had experienced those events, that he may have just kind of stepped away from his spot. We don't have anything there, but he doesn't step up if he's there, which seems odd. But Gamaliel is an interesting person to step up and to speak. This, uh, this actually came up as we were reading through this in Men's Fellowship, so plug for Men's Fellowship, um, we were talking about Gamaliel. So what, what's his deal? What, 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 why does he pop up here, he speak, and then he doesn't really speak much after this? We don't hear anything about him. And uh, Matt actually found a good, good article he had. He sent it over. Just looking at it, there are many who think that Gamaliel may have actually, at this point, been convinced that Jesus really was who he said he was. That he really was the Son of God and that he was kind of secretly at this point, at the very least intellectually, and since his position as his teacher, maybe professionally, he may have been convinced. So this may be him stepping up to maybe try to calm some things down here to say maybe we don't really go that, that direction because once we do that, we can't really come back from that. Right? If it, and he makes a point here to say if this really is true, we have to be careful, which is a very interesting thing to say. Uh, in the last chapter where, where you had them also, um, you had, oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't in this chapter, but there's another story where where Paul is, uh, he goes before them. I don't know why I said before. Later on, Paul makes a similar sort of case towards the Pharisees, and they sort of say, yeah, you're right, Paul. Talking about the resurrection. So, I mean, some of these things, there is some reasonable sort of discussion that may take place here. Gamaliel steps up, and it seems like he's the only one who steps up to say, this, we, we gotta be careful here. Now, the other thing I want to point out, the other person who's not mentioned here, 
I promise you I'm not going to talk about everybody who's not here, but this is the last one. Um, we find out later that Gamaliel is the teacher and that very specifically the mentor for Saul of Tarsus. Remember this? Saul of Tarsus obviously, famously, is Paul. We know who he is. He converts. But at this point, I want, I want to just pause for a second to think about this. Paul is described, and he describes himself as incredibly zealous. Incredibly zealous for Judaism, for the Lord, for the, for the scriptures. So here you have his mentor stand up and say, we should pause for a second and maybe consider. It's not stated here, but what we see happen in the next couple chapters is we do see someone step up to say, this rebellion within Judaism, this uprising, this group, this offshoot, they would probably not call themselves that, but they would say, this needs to be stopped. And Saul is the one who then takes this persecution of the church. First he encourages it, but then he also wants to expand it. And I find it interesting that you have the man who is his mentor saying we should really think about this and possibly maybe even be open to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And the response from this man in the next couple chapters will be the, the, the man who is being taught by Gamaliel is to persecute harder, is to push it. So the only person who seems to not take this advice with an earshot of the Sanhedrin after this is Saul, later Paul, which I find to be quite interesting. But that's a story for another time, that part. But looking back on, at this, I wanted to go back a little bit to the kind of what we're talking about before, this pattern, this the internal work that happens and then goes to external work that then is, receives opposition and then there's the opportunity to repeat that and to move forward or to fall back. When we, when we look at that in light of this, this story here, how do we follow in this, this example that the, the church gives? Or I should say it's the apostles, but we really see the church as being that driver. The apostles being brought forward to speak on behalf of this group. You have the church, you have the assembly, the kingdom of heaven on earth. They're living as though this was it. This was the time. This was the moment. This was the moment to step up. This was the moment to do what they have been called to do. This was it. We do have some example here. Nothing, you know, nothing is perfect. We do see difficulties from within in the beginning of chapter 5. So it's not as though everything is absolutely perfect within, but what we see is this pattern of really leaning into what the Lord had called them to do, seeing opposition, and then they take that next step forward. We see that repeated over and over and over again. So the question that I, would, I think that we should ask ourselves as part of the church, 
many years later, is, is this our time? Is it time? For them, it was time. And that opposition that they experienced almost proved that this was the time. This was the time for them to step up. This was the time for them to speak out. And they received the opposition for it. We look back on this and they're thousands of years removed from us. There seems to always be this sort of undercurrent as we should sort of return to those times and more more fervent understanding of what the church should be. Uh, you know, what are we doing wrong? What has been added to the church that makes things difficult? You know, even uh, overheard conversations with uh, people from other churches talking about, oh my gosh, all the difficulties with ushers today and just like them serving. And you think, wow, I don't see those being really difficult things that the church maybe should be thinking about as an usher. And, you know, I'm obviously being a little a little hard on that. You do have to figure out who's going to sit where, where things are. There's a lot of practical things that have to happen. So I'm not denigrating it, but it's very interesting to think, do some of the internal sort of logistical things take the place of some of these more important conversations? And I only ask the question to just, do we distract ourselves? Do we make the right decisions as far as what to focus on? What are we looking at? I think we can make those sort of, we can point the fingers at ourselves today and we could probably sit and identify some things that could be distractions. They might be good things, might distract us. But understand there's, every generation of the church has had that. Every generation. So specifically where people are gonna park their cars is not something they were thinking about a thousand years ago or 1500 years ago. But we find out in two chapters that they have an issue with distributing food. So they have their own practical things to think about. So we're not saying that those things shouldn't be brought up or thought about or talked about. But what I wanna concentrate on is, are we actually fulfilling those marks of being a servant of Jesus as his body on earth at this time? So let's look at a couple chapters here, or a couple of, of passages here, and you can see what I'm, what I'm sort of getting at. Let's look at Psalm 23. For some of you, you don't have to turn there because you may have memorized it. This is a pretty famous passage, right? Even unbelievers know this one. A lot of them do. A lot of times it gets read at funerals. At least on TV. And then they sing Amazing Grace. They read this Psalm, and then they sing Amazing Grace. That's what happens at every funeral on TV. This is the ones I've seen. But this, this has a meaning for us. This has something for us to go to, to to look at here. Opening line, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We could, we could sit there for a while and, and dwell there, and it's a good place to go. But I want to point to verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death... I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So just on verse four, pause that for a sec. This is one of those verses we oftentimes give to other people. They're going through something, something difficult, something tough. 
Here, let me give you this verse. Maybe we state it. Maybe we point to it. Maybe we paraphrase it. We go through it. So when you're going through a dark time, the Lord is with you. And yes, that is, that is extremely important. And to think of it this way too, Lord doesn't remove the valley. You go through the valley and he's there with you so you can actually keep walking through the valley. We have a God who sees the suffering on earth and wants to walk through it and give us a path through the suffering and through the darkness. This is great. But look at verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Think about this for a second. In the midst of enemies, he sits down to have a sit-down meal. Now that is next level. We can, we, can, we can talk about walking through a dark valley and we can, we can think about that, but think about the person who is in the midst of their own enemy and yet they have a sit-down meal that's already prepared for them. Not only that, their cup overflows. In the midst of that, in the midst of being in the presence of their enemies, they have this. I don't know if we can totally identify with our head being anointed with oil, We'll go with it. These are all amazing things and luxuries to have, especially when you're in the midst of your enemy. Now, this is not a verse that we normally go to to say, we need to think about this and we need to do this, but, but think about us and how we live. How often are we in the presence of enemies and we have access to the Lord who then serves us in the midst of our enemies. I think it's pretty amazing. I think we could spend a while there, but we're not. We're going to go to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, look at verse 12. This is the Apostle Paul sending a letter to the church at Philippi in Macedonia. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Him being in prison was for the Messiah. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord in my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So here's the Apostle Paul, in prison, not great, it's not a good day. And he's saying, I'm here because of the Messiah. I'm here for the benefit of others. I'm here because the Lord's put me here, and why? We find out in Philippians, it's... Some of his guards have now come to know who Jesus was. So think about that. If you were a guard, would you ever have any connection with the church naturally? Part of being a prison guard was he was chained to these men. So they may have thought, oh, this prisoner is stuck to me. And here's Paul sitting saying, this guard is stuck to me. They came to know who the Lord was. 
They became part of the church because of that. Paul says, my imprisonment is for the benefit of the Messiah. My imprisonment is good. Even though we look at it and say, imprisonment, bad. He says, no, imprisonment, good. It doesn't mean it was fun. It doesn't mean that he enjoyed himself. But it meant it was good. Then we'll turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is a little bit longer than the two verses, so here I'll just read it here. Chapter 3, starting in verse 8. This is Peter, obviously. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So think about that. That's very much an Acts sort of mentality, right? We've read through some of the passages, these very things that would have been highlighted in the early church. So he's telling them, have unity. Do these things, right? Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil, but, I'm sorry, or reviling for reviling, but, on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So he's saying, if you receive evil, don't return that. Instead, recognize that blessing. Verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. These, is, these are what we would call just general encouragements for the church. You, you, know, you know these things. These are good things to do. You should keep your tongue from evil and from lies. You should turn from evil and do good. These are, these are things we'd say, yes, these are ways that we should live. These are things that we should do. Okay. Verse 13, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, which is what we're seeing in the book of Acts, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. So, the only thing I really want to point out with some of these passages are this. Sometimes we look at we look at Psalm twenty three and say, "Wow, Lord really took care of David." Look at that. We look at Philippians. Wow, Lord really gave Paul a great attitude for him being in prison. We look at. Peter, oh, the Lord gave such a, a blessing to Peter to be able to speak these words having suffered in such a way. So I'd say, when do we do that? When is our day to rely on the Lord like David did in Psalm 23? When is it for us to recognize I'm in the midst of my enemy, I can trust the Lord for him to deliver me, not just deliver me, for me to enjoy a nice meal in the presence of my enemies. 
when are we going to look to see, wow, I'm experiencing evil being thrown at me. It's my day to turn it around and to give a blessing back because that's what I do as God's servant. So many of these passages, we look in Acts, we look in Philippians, we look at Peter, we look at throughout the scripture and we say, that is great for them, but you don't understand. You understand my position. Oh yes, the Lord does. And the same promises are available. It's just the question of whether it's today. Is today the day where I'm God's servant? Because if we go back to this pattern, what has to happen is there's, there's an internal work that takes place, and then we have to step out. Or I should say, we naturally, if that internal work is taking place by the grace of God and through the Holy Spirit, we will then step out. And once we do step out, there will be opposition. It's promised to us. We are promised opposition. We're promised trials. We're promised tribulation. We're pro- we are promised times to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit that is promised for us that we're going to experience those things. So once that has taken place, once we have stepped out there and then we see that opposition, and when we come back together, Lord willing, and we share those things with each other, we then have an opportunity. Do we step into it? Instead of do we say, Lord, please let the Sanhedrin overlook what we're doing in the temple. Help, us, help them not to see us. Or do we say, no, it is time for us to speak. It's time for us to do what the Lord has called us to do. Even with the opposition, we step into it. When is that time? When is that time for us? Right now at Refuge, I don't know if if you all have had these conversations, but I've had many conversations with people within Refuge where it feels like we're at the top of that cycle right now. The Lord is doing something in not just hearts of individuals, but I, I, I have heard it from others that the Lord is doing something right now. Are you, do you recognize that as well? The Lord is doing something in, in, in this church? Or am I alone? I know we're not Baptist, really. You can say amen if you also feel that. If it's just me, it's just me. But do you guys feel that's also, is it that time? Are we at the top of that cycle? The Lord is doing something in our hearts individually and in the hearts of us collectively. I see that Baptist over there. (laughs) If that's true, what's the next step? If, If this cycle really is something of a pattern, what's the next step for us? Step out? What does that look like? I have no idea. We don't have a temple to go to. So what is it going to be? I don't know. But are we ready for it? Are we going to look at those passages to say, hey, when we go out, we're going to experience that opposition. And when we do, we're going to step into it. We're going to keep pushing that direction. We don't have time to look at it today, but you go to Revelation and you see a mixed bag of churches of what they did in those times and moments and in that same cycle. There were some who were pushing forward, who are praised by the Lord Jesus, and there are those where he says, you know, if you keep on your current trajectory, I'm just going to snuff out the light. And so the question is, is, is it today that we're the Lord's servant? Or is that for someone else? Because this is really the only choice. If we are really the assembly 
of heaven here on earth, if we are the church, I think we all know what those decisions are supposed to be. So then we are called to then encourage each other in that. And I am excited to see what the Lord does in light of that. Heavenly Father, we are of all people blessed, Lord, that we are able to look and to see examples of what your church was called to do in times past. Thank you, Lord, for preserving these stories, these examples for us. Lord, as we read the passage in, in Acts, after Gamaliel gives his speech, the people were, the, the leaders were still so angry that they still beat the apostles before they sent them out. Lord, we know that we will see opposition, we will experience opposition, we will feel the opposition. So Lord, I pray that we, like the early church, we would count it a blessing to suffer because we know that if we suffer for righteousness sake, we are on the right path. Lord, I pray we would not give in to the temptation and feeling that we're only doing the right thing if we receive good things. Because we know that's not what you've called to us to only. We know that there is blessing in the journey. We know there will be difficulty. Lord, I pray you would prepare us to help bear one another's burdens, that we would be ready to face whatever opposition that is, whether that's other individuals, whether that's mockery, whether that's people losing jobs for the sake of Christ because they've spoken up, whether that's health concerns, health trials. Lord, I pray that you would prepare us to step up and to walk in light of you, in light of your truth, in light of who you are, in light of who you've called us to be. Lord, I pray that you would make us ready ready to do your will. Lord, I pray that today would be the day we step up and recognize that we are your servants. We are in the last days. Lord, we pray that you will come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.